1: Hello and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar, we're your hosts, I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. Willow, I don't know about you, but the reason I'm interested in the weird and unexplained is not so much about trying to understand or explain the anomalous, but because the more that remains unexplained, the less confined and boxed in I feel. Yes. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I
1: do. I, I like that there's <laughs> because, mystery.
2: There's an important distinction there, I think.
1: Yeah. Between
2: like, I'm into aliens because, or ghosts because I had an experience once and I think I know what it is and I want to prove it to be true.
1: Yeah, I versus, want to find the truth.
2: Right. Yeah. Versus I want to explore all there is to know.
1: Yeah, like I, there's, there's comfort in knowing that no one knows shit. Yes. At least for me. Like I see the phrase anything can happen as liberating rather than threatening. Because, you know, I'm a fucking pessimist and my predictions are often that things aren't going to be great. And I'm usually right.
2: (laughs) So if anything can happen, that means like good things can happen too.
1: Exactly. So the ability ability of the world to like surprise me and laugh at my attempts to explain it, that's a good thing. We're talking today about a very well-known figure in the paranormal. Some might say the most well-known. I don't know too much. Well, he's so well-known, in fact, that his name is a synonym for the study of unexplained anomalous phenomena. Fourteen, I knew that. Yeah. We're talking about Charles Fort, who I have to admit, I didn't really care about until recently, because I had a misconception about what this walrus-looking motherfucker was all about, I think, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that.
2: What was the misconception?
1: Well, what do you know about Charles Fort?
2: I know that he made that magazine. He didn't. I, okay, then I don't all right. know shit.
1: <laughs> right on.
2: I literally know nothing.
1: Okay, so like, what everyone kind of knows about Charles Fort is... That he, not everyone apparently <laughs> 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 is that he um, he catalog- he started cataloging anomalous events. Uh, Fortean phenomena is strange anomalous stuff that defies
2: high strangeness.
1: More like fish falls and shit like that. Okay. What, so what Charles Ford did was in a series of four books, he just went on a tear of just like combining case after case after case of just strange things. He he was the first guy to catalog he cataloged the anomalous airships, you know, 30, 30 years before airships were invented. Okay. Fish falls were a big thing. A lot of weird shit falling from the sky.
2: So like an archivist of strange stories.
1: And using it as a way to attack or critique scientific dogma, sort of. I like it. But critiquing and attacking dogma in general. I like um, it even more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like... I would like to make the case that Charles Fort belongs in the nonsense, bizarre pantheon of tricksters alongside characters like Leo Taxel. Okay. More than just a, the guy, he's known as the guy who invented the paranormal, Mm. right? He created the genre of paranormal, of, of the supernatural and shit, because the side of Charles Fort that I've never heard discussed before, and that might be because I haven't really looked, let's be honest, is that this dude was an artist. He was a writer. Like first and foremost, he was a writer. He was an experimental artist who was trying to do something with his work. And that something wasn't about proving that fish falls were due to the super sargasso sea above our heads, (laughs) above our atmosphere, or that the strange rains of meat in Kentucky, like I said, a lot of weird shit falling from the sky, was the flotsam that remained from an interstellar battle, or that Martians were shifting probability on Earth for their own ends with ray guns. The nature of the work he became famous for, four books published in the last decade or so of his life, starting with The Book of the Damned, was an insane and unassailable collection of events with sources that flew in the face of any and all explanations. Fort is now considered to be the man who invented the field of the paranormal. To Fort, the extraordinary was actually ordinary, and in his time, he was an incredibly divisive figure. You either got it or you didn't. But even if you thought you got it, you probably didn't. Yes, he was satirizing the scientific dogmas of the early 20th century. Yes, he was satirizing religious dogmas and satirizing newspapers and writers and satirizing himself and genuinely collecting these types of stories and did genuinely believe a lot of what he wrote. But to focus in on any of these things is, I think, to miss the point. At the end of the day, Charles Fort was an artist trying to mind fuck the world and get paid a little bit for it. Relatable. And he fucking rules. Yeah. And now I have included a large quote from the beginning of his uh first book in this collection the book of the damned oh boy and it is i put this quote here that is exactly how it is written in the book with the weird line breaks and shit okay yeah so so this is for me yes okay
2: by the damned i mean the excluded we shall have a procession of data that science has excluded Battalions of the accursed, captained by pallid data that I have exhumed, will march. You'll read them, or they'll march. Some of them livid, and some of them fiery, and some of them rotten. Some of them are corpses, skeletons, mummies, twitching, tottering, animated by companions that have been damned alive. There are giants that will walk by, though sound asleep. There are things that are theorems and things that are rags. They'll go by like Euclid, arm in arm with the spirit of anarchy. Here and there will flit little harlots. Many are clowns, but many are of the highest respectability. Some are assassins. There are pale stenches and gaunt superstitions and mere shadows and lively malices, whims and amiabilities, the naive and the pedantic and the bizarre and the grotesque and the sincere and the insincere, the profound and the puerile, a stab and a laugh and the patiently folded hands of the hopeless propriety the ultra respectable but the condemned anyway the aggregate appearance is of dignity and dissoluteness the aggregate voice is a defiant prayer but the spirit of the whole is processional the power that has said to all these things that they are damned is dogmatic science but they'll march the little harlots will caper and freaks will distract attention and the clowns will break the rhythm of the whole with their buffooneries but the solidity of the procession as a whole, the impressiveness of things that pass and pass and pass and keep on and keep on and keep on coming, the irresistibleness <laughs> of things that neither threaten nor jeer nor defy, but arrange themselves in mass formations that pass and pass.
1: Oh, yeah, no, you're, you're... That
2: pass and pass <laughs> and keep on passing. So by the damned, I mean the excluded. But by the excluded, I mean that which will someday be the excluding or... Everything that is won't be, and everything that isn't will be, but of course will be that which won't be. It is our expression that the flux between that which isn't and that which won't be, or the state that is commonly and absurdly called existence, is a rhythm of heavens and hells. That the damned won't stay damned. That salvation only precedes perdition. The inference is that someday our accursed tattered demolions will be sleek angels. Then the sub-inference is that some later day, back they'll go whence they came.
1: So you see, it's not necessarily an easy read. <laughs> oh,
2: I loved every moment of it. Right, I was, dude, a, I was imagining um, the dream procession from uh, Paprika, where it's like this, this parade, this carnival of, of things, yeah. in the dream world, like crashing into the real world. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, dude. Yeah. It's fucking sick. I love I, it. Yeah, dude. <laughs>
2: I, I feel like I just read a manifesto.
1: Yeah. Dude dude is trying to fuck you up. Like that was just so clear to me as soon as I started reading the book of the damned like But there's been enough retellings of the cases that Fort covered and the anomalies themselves. We're going to talk about the fella. Who was this dude who invented the paranormal quote unquote?
2: The guy who wrote that shit? Yeah. That I just read? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in it. Exactly. Him. Why does he look like Teddy Roosevelt? <laughs> Let's do what we do. Pull a tarot card and then learn about Mr. Charles Fort. Wonderful. The thing is, Charles Ford's kind of a boring, eccentric guy. Well, we'll see. We'll see. He's a real sweetheart.
2: Aw. <laughs> yeah. I like him a lot. Fuck yeah. What an inspiration. I know.
1: It's so funny that, like, H.G. Wells and H.L. Uh, Mencken fucking hated Charles Ford. <laughs> like, <laughs> his biggest booster was a, a writer named Theodore Dreiser, who was like often pilloried um with obscenity laws and shit and like oh. nice the star i love it yeah hell yeah hell yeah oh that's super relevant that's a really awesome card for charles Ford, actually like that's fantastic okay yeah the star uh we will talk about that at the end
2: what a nice card
1: So Charles Hoy Fort was what? Born. Hoy Charles Hoy Fort.
2: That's not a real name.
1: It's just I guess it is. Came came from Dutch stock. Okay. Yeah. Is born August sixth, eighteen seventy four, in Albany, New York. Potentially the most boring town on the planet. One of them. If you ever been to those upstate New York cities, so they're no, they're, not, they're no Big Apple. I'll tell you what.
2: Hey, there's a colorful history over there, though. There is. I mean. Burnt over district?
1: Yeah. It's been burning and burning. Burning forever. (sighs) Charles was the oldest of three boys. Their mother died shortly after the birth of Fort's youngest brother. Charles's father, also named Charles, was a grocery store magnate. His father before him had been in the hotel game in New York City before moving on to the grocery store game in Albany. Charles the Younger and his brothers were expected to follow in their father's footsteps and become businessmen, and dad was a right dickhead, physically abusive, intolerant father figure. You know the type. We hear about the type all the time.
2: Mm, Yeah, it stuck with that no mom either.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ford wrote wrote an autobiography later in life called Many Parts. Uh, It was unpublished. Only fragments survived. It was written with an odd...
2: (laughs) That's that's funny. Yeah. Given the name of the thing is Many Parts.
1: That comes from the... uh, That's a Shakespeare allusion to uh, all the world's a stage... The men and women, many play, uh, merely players with their many parts, something like that. Indeed. Yeah, um, it was written with an odd, childish literary swagger. Fort wrote in the first person plural, like referring to himself as we. we. Yeah. Throughout, Charles was we. His next brother, Raymond, was the other kid. Clarence, the youngest, was the little kid, and his father was always referred to as they, which is odd. Uh, there's a quote below.
2: At the dinner table, we were not allowed to speak. They could not bear to hear our voices. Once, feeling the restraint, we giggled nervously. They looked over the newspaper, saying, Who's that? The little kid started to tell. He kept quiet. The other kid answered that he had heard nothing. We said, I did it. Mrs. Larson would have told anyway. We wanted credit for truthfulness. Go upstairs, we rising slowly, eating pie as we rose, we going up inch by inch, pie going down inch by inch. Couldn't bear to leave that pie. (laughs) And this was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Defiance to them, jumping from their chair, catching us by the collar, hitting us in the face with their open hand. That's not funny. No, but, <laughs> um, this, <laughs> but it's like, if you're gonna hit me, I'm gonna eat, at least have, eat my pie.
1: Couldn't bear to leave that pie.
2: Um, no, that's so. That's the one nice thing.
1: Yeah, uh, like once they were kids, like one of the neighbor boys convinced them Fort and his brother Raymond that they could get a job wrangling elephants in India uh, if they saved up enough money to actually get over there, and they. Raymond and, and Charles, like, actually saved up a bunch of money and gave it to the kid, but he just, like, bought food for his family because it was, it was a prank to get food you know, for his dream family. big. Point is, they wanted out of Albany and out of their father's house, and the longing for something greater was, like, always with Charles. He wrote,
2: We almost liked Sunday school, especially as there were some very good books in the library. Religion as an emotion was strong in us, though quite as strong was a resisting of this emotion. Sometimes all that wanted to be Christian were called upon to raise their hands. A throbbing and an urging would almost overcome us with the seeing of beauty in what we were called upon to be. But our hand would never go up, as if a feeling of sternness withheld us from what seemed an indecent advertising of feeling.
1: His distrust of science as taught was also stoked from a young age, writing,
2: There seemed to be something wrong about every experiment. Professor demonstrating that in a vacuum, a bullet and a feather fall at equal speed. The bullet falling first. Teaching us that gray, that black is the absence of color and white is all colors. Mixing colors. Producing a brownish gray. Putting a black cloth and a white cloth out in the sun on windowsill snow. As black absorbs heat, the black cloth should sink in the snow. White cloth making a decided impression. Black cloth not a trace that it had been there. Very hard to teach truths when truth won't come out right.
1: (laughs) And Charles also started collecting things as a boy. At this point, it was stamps. Then it was paper soldiers. Later, it would be fragments of imagery hastily scrawled on paper. And later still, it would be unexplained phenomena. (laughs) And even collecting stamps, remember this is the 1800s, each one of those stamps came from somewhere else. Right. right? A faraway place where everything is different. Young Charles dreamt of, of achieving great things. Uh, quote, something that seemed wondrous and better and meant for us, end quote. Mostly he was anxious to be grown up with all the vague dreams and specific obsessions that entailed.
2: Relatable. I feel like when I was a kid, I could not wait to be an adult. And now that I'm an adult, I just want to be like a kid again.
1: Oh, that was wicked. Yeah, that was super Charles Ford. He wrote,
2: but someday we'd be a man looking forward to that far distant 21st birthday. Then we could have all the chili sauce that we should want. We had some sort of an idea of a chili sauce spree, <laughs> celebrating with our friends, opening bottle after bottle. Awful debauchery. More bottles <laughs> on our twenty-first birthday. There should be little heard but the popping of chili sauce. <laughs> oh, I get that. Yeah. When, I, when I was a kid, I was like, "Man, I can't wait to drive so I could like go to McDonald's whenever I
1: want." Yeah, 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 like, exactly. <laughs> and also, like, I'm a hot sauce guy. Like, yeah. I love my my fucking weird boutique hot sauces.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the chili sauce you want. Hell yeah. And you can eat it whenever you want.
1: Awful debauchery. More bottles.
2: (laughs) So naughty, Charles. I
1: fucking love it so much. Him and his brother were getting it. They got into trouble quite a lot. And during one of their pranks, uh, Charles accidentally burned a fence in the back garden. His father wanted him to answer for his crimes. But by now, Charles had become completely numb to his punishments. He wrote,
2: Why do you do these bad things? Just for fun. Our stiff body was there. We were somewhere else or had ceased to exist. Ah, oh, that disassociation, though. Yeah. Now tell me, try to think and don't be afraid. Why do you do these bad things? Our lips formed just for fun. They struck us savagely. Blood gushed from our nose. Then we were there, said Mrs. Larson. Toddy's nose bleeds so readily. They went away, but we were there. A wild, mad we. Running up the stairs, blood all over, running into the spare room, throwing ourselves up on the bed, rubbing our nose all over the counterpane, a dirty, groveling little beast crazed to get even and doing damage was the only way to get even. Rubbing our nose on the lace curtains, making the room a horror room, gurgling hysterically and then just sodden, not caring what should be done with us. In fact, wishing they would kill us. For suicide had been in our mind from the earliest days. Trying a sharp rap on our nose to renew the supply. For the truth that is, for the truth is that nosebleeding was an ailment of ours. Jesus. Um. Jesus is right. Yeah. Right. Yikes. I, yeah. So, I'm like, I'm sad that that's his childhood, but like, you will find that some of the most resilient, amazing people. We're just totally fucked in their their childhoods. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. one hundred percent. Trauma up the yin yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, one hundred percent. And Charles Fort was a generally incredibly shy and soft spoken, not just growing up, but throughout his whole his whole life. Like in person, he was a very soft spoken, shy dude. But growing up, he was just, this was especially true around girls. However, when Charles was thirteen, he met a young lady named Anna Filling, four years his senior, so seventeen.
2: Okay, Miss Cougar.
1: Yeah, Anna was fascinated with Charles's <laughs> seventeen. Ro- yeah, right. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but kinda though, you know,
2: seventeen and thirteen. Yeah, like I can't. Okay, he he had to have been a quite a
1: developed. 13 he was a big boy.
2: Old. Yeah, because if I was seventeen, um,
1: yeah, this was also in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, very know. different. Well, Anna was fascinated with Charles's romantic and imaginative interest in faraway places. And they became good friends, and spoiler alert, they'd later marry and be together for the rest of Charles's life, but not yet. Mm. Charles was, as I said, a big boy, like like <laughs> a big fucking dude. Uh, and soon he was too big for his father to hit him anymore, and instead, uh, his father took to basically locking him in solitary confinement instead.
2: How did he do that?
1: For, according to Charles, days at a time, which is just insane because fuck that. Yeah, honestly, and when Charles's younger brother. Clarence turned 10. Their father informed him that he'd had enough of him, and Clarence would be going to live at basically a bad boy's school on a farm, like an industrial agriculture training place or whatever. Send him off. Yeah. A few years later, Charles would go and visit him, and it was, like, super awkward, and the last time they ever saw one another. Oh. Yeah.
2: Okay. Not close to his brother's then. later in life?
1: (sighs) He was a lot closer to Raymond, the the second brother, but, like, still not close. Yeah. Like but they corresponded and such uh uh Clarence ended up developing alcoholism and all his own fucking problems and shit and uh yeah i was going to include a lot more about that but it's just kind of depressing
2: yeah Clarence didn't have the uh resilience that Charles had i guess oh
1: and like i don't know i've i've known it's not a good thing to send a kid off to a fucking Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
2: because then it's like, you know, you you already only have one parent and then that one parent ships you off. It's yeah. like a double abandonment.
1: They had a stepmom, but... Yeah. St- yeah, yeah, exactly. But when Charles was 15, he and his father actually had a temporary truce because his dad told him that uh, Charles and Raymond were going to go to summer camp that one year because his dad was going on vacation on his own. And, like, Charles realized how... He was like, oh, my God, I'm getting out of Albany. I get to go to camp. Mm-hmm. And so he actually like, made an effort to befriend his dad after realizing like how awesome that would
2: oh i'm not trapped with you i actually get to go somewhere else
1: yeah i'll
2: I'll willingly spend time with you now
1: yeah so he like made an effort to befriend his dad like visiting his room to play chess and talking about fishing and hunting quote everything for everything forgotten and forgiven at last and charles and raymond shared a glorious summer with 20 other boys hiking canoeing and camping under the stars charles wrote
2: everything we had longed for we'd think of the We'd think of the little girl in the next block, if she could only see us. We were sure she would be quite stupefied with admiration, for we had walked where Indians had walked. We were on familiar terms with a real guide, and we had seen bear marks on a tree. Um, Oh, yeah. That little girl would be so (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And this is when Charles started writing in earnest, um, like journaling his time at the summer camp and shit. And Charles's uncle John, his mother's brother, uh, who also lived in Albany, took an interest in the lad's writing. John was Agnes Hoy's younger brother. He was about a decade older than Charles and treated him as a younger brother. Charles, in turn, was honest with John. and quote. We had always told the truth about our worthless self when he had asked us.
2: That's a real friend right there.
1: Yep. John realized that the boy, just 16, just 16 years old, was pessimistic about taking his final high school examinations, and he asked him, how would you like to be in the newspaper business? Charles answered, oh, all right. Later explaining in his, in his memoirs. Quote, by which we meant that nothing could be more attractive to us. <laughs>
2: just so blasé. Like, yeah. yeah, I guess right. that would be good. Meanwhile, inwardly, he's like, ah! Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, John Hoy was a boyhood friend of the editor of the Albany Argus and put in a good word for his nephew. Go around to the Argus, he told him. There won't be much of anything in it for you at first, but it will give you an idea. And someday we may get you down to New York. Just keep your rubbers on and you'll not slip up. The first problem that Charles encountered was that his handwriting was completely... Illegible, huh. and this is in a time where you hand wrote things and mm. handed them off, which I sympathize with. Have I ever told you about my how my handwriting was so bad that they, they made me use this fucking big special typing computer? <laughs> <laughs> wound, wound. No, <laughs> really? Oh yeah, dude. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wounds run deep. But Charles would end up with essentially two different handwriting styles: one big and curvy to be read professionally. And another, an indecipherable scrawled fucking mess that his friends and confidants would catch the butt end of. But Charles took to reporting with his usual obsessiveness. He would eaves, started eavesdropping on like household conversations and writing everything down. Just everything, like his stepmom or the like. Collecting info. Yeah. Data collection. Uh, Constantly scrawling bits of gossip. Like, and this bothered everyone around him.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it will bother me. Yes, actually. I mean, yeah, it would, yes. but even though I
1: know that it's happening in real time. Just that giant bear sitting next to you. Yes. We're going to keep referencing that bear. People are going to like, what the fuck we talking about. There's a
2: big bear next There's to her.
1: There's a giant fucking teddy bear on the couch next to her that is just there every time we record. And by giant, I mean it's bigger than her. Yes. It's fucking huge. Just imagine that fucking teddy bear is young Charles Fort.
2: Just crawling <laughs> around the house with his little notepad.
1: Just sitting there. This giant quiet boy just writing down everything anyone was saying. It was unnerving. Yes. Charles's enthusiasm only irritated his father, who now realized that his son had rejected the respectable grocery business. This was a personal insult. Of course. Worse was that it was fucking John Hoy who had done it. His dead wife's no good younger brother with his writings right. and his.
2: Like, what, is he a better dad than me? What, you like Uncle John more than me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course I do.
1: Charles, uh, Charles Nelson Fort merely thought of his son as John's experiment. They sneering at anything undertaken by that young John, as they called him.
2: They and being, uh...
1: The dad. Yes. Yeah. Um, the truce between Charles and his father was broken.
2: Yeah, it didn't last Yeah, 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 No, yeah. never does
1: uh charles wrote we'd long for encouragement they'd shake the newspaper at us just as when a little boy just as when a little boy talking was forbidden at our table and what
2: is the see that pisses me off me too dude. what's I the point of it. sitting at the table for dinner together if nobody's allowed to talk
1: honestly just
2: go in your room and eat with your book i then. don't
1: i don't get it you know yeah
2: <laughs> why even do that
1: yeah and so charles was like almost an adult but he could not speak while at the table while his father quietly read the Argus, the paper that Charles had been writing for all day. Man. Yeah. Eventually, uh, Charles received his own beat, his own reporting beat, covering the surrogate court for the Argus, which isn't very interesting. But the point is that Charles, now 17, was actually on his way to a career as being a writer.
2: Yeah, which must have been really meaningful for him because it truly felt like at home nothing he said out loud mattered. Right. No, nothing he tried to express or say.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Like,
2: was listened to. So, but what could he do? He could write.
1: Yeah. And he was getting, like, professional validation and all this shit. Right. Of course, the peace with his father had been short-lived, and, every, and eventually Charles was kicked out of the house. After being denied a piece of cake at dinner, uh, the rest of the table was not denied a piece of cake. Charles couldn't have a piece of cake. Charles grabbed said piece of cake. His stepmother tried to pry the piece of cake from him, and Charles responded by throwing the piece of cake at her head, which <laughs> caused the whole house to explode. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's kind of funny.
2: I'm I'm in awe. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. With him smearing his bloody nose all over the curtains, yeah. too, like, what the fuck else do you expect?
1: Honestly, though, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
2: here's a person that, that is trapped, that's confined, that can't talk. Yeah. Like what else do they have to express themselves other than like violence and destruction at that point?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
2: to be like, fuck you, I can't have cake. Then it's going in your face. Like, Yeah.
1: <laughs> like when he would get punished by like solitary confinement in like the fucking boiler room or something like something really fucked up. He would he would just start like singing old like America songs yeah. about freedom and shit I would like, come up
2: with stories in his head. Yeah. Like if all you have is your thoughts to keep you entertained. You well,
1: know. after the food fight. Charles went to live with his maternal gran- grandfather. That was a lot better. He was also getting to be an adult, and he, so he had to figure out how to earn a living. His fanciful collecting and daydreaming was replaced by day after day of writing and trying to send out stories to be published in other magazines, which he did. He published story. Like, he got yeah. published, yeah. Like His voice Fort, was heard. Yeah, like, Fort was less of an underdog his whole life than he was just an odd dog. <laughs>
2: like... <laughs> Yeah, no, he was successful.
1: Yeah, but like an idiosyncratic dog. He struggled. Like, we we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. But like, he was idiosyncratic and stubborn. I like him for that because I am too. Mm. The stories he sold at this time, though, were usually humorous and based on camping trips or other outdoors adventures. Right. You know, like a young man would write at the time. So some of, uh, some of Charles' stories were picked up by publications in NYC, making him a minor celebrity among his friends in Albany. And then he was offered a job reporting for Brooklyn World in Brooklyn. So at the age of 18 in 1892, Charles moved to Brooklyn and made $18 a week, which will never not be funny. Just that that was a like living wage yes. in fucking Brooklyn, New York.
2: You know, that's, that's making good money.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's making enough. 18 you know? bucks. 18 bucks a fucking week, dude. So here's the thing about Charles Fort. Writers' lives are kind of fucking boring. Just straight up. Not boring to read about, but definitely not great radio. Uh, so we're going to gloss over a lot of shit, because realistically, Charles Fort had a very normal life, except for some of it. And we're going to talk about that. But the best record of Fort's days in Brooklyn may be a series of short stories he composed uh, several years later, based in a Brooklyn newspaper office. Um, they were fiction, but it's pretty clear that like Charles Fort is the narrator and these things happened, right? hmm The predominant joke in Fort's stories, and I want to just like stress that I think this is really important. Predominant joke in Fort's stories was that reporters were usually trying to put one over on the editor, do as little work as possible, and be paid as much as possible. hmm In one of the stories, when a stranger stumbled into the office with a story, Fort explained why certain reporters might ignore him. Quote,
2: We were on salary and we were not straining our eyes for extra work. We never saw callers who might have stories that someone might be sent out on. But young Bingler, <laughs> who was on space looked interested. The more he wrote, the more he was paid. And that boy had a vocabulary that would astonish, if not pain you. For mundane sphere, he was paid twice as much as for earth. So polysyllabic, he always was. End of a man slipping on a banana peel, hmm? and of a man slipping on a banana peel could write a book.
1: Weird fucking sentence, Charles.
2: There's a lot of sentences where it's like, is that a typo or is that miswritten? No, I, that's just how it that's, is.
1: That's just how he wrote.
2: hmm A generous young fellow, but space writing makes one so mean that he had <laughs> been known to turn Smith into Smithers for three more letters. You can figure out that gain yourself. 1,600 words to the column, and for a column, $4 and a half.
1: According to Fort, dramatic criticism in Brooklyn, like the art scene, uh, invited indolence, he wrote.
2: I learned that every female inhabitant of Brooklyn was an amateur actress and every male inhabitant sang in a male quartet. Everybody in Brooklyn belonged to a lodge of some kind and every lodge gave a theatrical performance when it had no one to initiate and had nothing else to do. In small theaters and large halls and small halls and every kind of hall, this vice broke out. We were pestered with it gilt edged cards with cupids or masks on them came in every mail and most of our night assignments were theatrical performances. For hopeless actresses and hopeless tenors would buy many copies of the newspaper with their names in it to send throughout the country to everyone they had ever known. When programs were sent, we would not bother to go home- We would not bother to go to a performance, but would just make a list of the participants and write our criticisms at home. It is very easy to be a dramatic critic. Start with the first name on a program and write Creditable rendition. After it, go on with lifelike interpretation, and tack on to someone else dramatic intensity. When we had nothing else to do, we wrote out a dozen criticisms in advance, and then filled it in with the names from night to night. That's savage. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like <laughs> that's that's not very nice to the actresses. No, <laughs> but that's funny as fuck.
1: Yeah. Uh, when asked to report on a minister's sermon, uh, Fort's narrator admits.
2: We wrote our own. It was always easier than the actual reporting. The day before, I had been sent to write up a lecture on Abraham Lincoln somewhere miles away in the Eastern District. Naturally, I'd walked merely over to the library and asking for a biography, wrote my own lecture, which was creditable enough to the lecturer, for I took more pains than I should have ever taken with veritable extracts. (laughs) Sounds like every book report I ever wrote. I know. Um, In
1: 1893, he and two friends started their own Paper, the Woodhaven Independent. In reality, it disappeared after a couple months, but would show up later in Fort's stories as the paper where the laziest and most deceptive of all reporters worked. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Writing to a friend, Fort later complained that, he had, that he'd have been a real success by 25 if some force hadn't gotten hold of him. That force was Fort's own romanticism. Growing up, Fort's sense of the picturesque was oddly analytical. This is according to uh, Jim Steinmeier. It seemed that the notion of having adventures, the process, was much more important than the actual adventures. In many parts, he described his feelings. Floundering in the snow, staggering and fighting, calling to the other other small boys, come back ye cowards, very much liking the ye. It (laughs) It seemed as if right out of a storybook. Crying things we had read, our mind filled with much reading. But it was not courage, it was our joy in the picturesque. We seeing gallantry and romance in our defiance. And we had a mania to fight with larger boys, because of the glory that would come to us if we should triumph.
2: Everything's like a story. Yeah. his mind. Yeah, he loves it. Yeah. Also... (laughs) that friend oh he complained himself that he he would have been a real success by 25 yeah like bro you did fine you did fine yeah 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 yeah. yeah. for real (laughs) though fantastic you
1: started a newspaper you're right in brooklyn you started
2: a a fucking (laughs) you don't even know what you started
1: well not yet not yet He hadn't started anything yet he was just a he was just a fellow did he know yeah at this point he didn't know it shit uh after two years working as a reporter in new york city fort feared that he'd reached his limit as a writer he'd been confined to a small world of experiences in brooklyn or woodhaven he later wrote of this time i became a newspaper reporter and instead of collecting idealists bodies in morgues sunday school children parading in brooklyn green goods men and convicts in jail i arranged my experiences i pottered over them quite as i had over birds eggs and minerals and insects he realized that real writers drew on experience their own experience that faraway places, exotic people, and unexpected adventures, all this shit. He didn't have that capital.
2: No, he was locked in the boiler room.
1: But he was pulling $25 a month from his inheritance and, uh, left to him by his grandfather. So.
2: So go travel, buddy.
1: Charles Fort arranged a system whereby he could get that money sent to various places around the country and his ass set off on an adventure. Just fucking rambling.
2: God bless. All of this to accumulate and experience a knowledge of life that would fit me to become a writer i want wanted to know cowboys and day laborers sailors queer boarding house people clerks sea captains vagabonds everybody i would get together a vast capital of impressions of life and then invest it
1: he went to richmond intrigued with the remnants of the sweet antebellum sensibilities which seem so foreign to a feller from new york He watched a guard barking orders at a chain gang on the side of the road, a series of workers, quote, linked like zebra sausages. Fort befriended traveling salesmen and hobos inquiring about where they were going, deciding at the spur of the moment to join them. Farther south to Jacksonville, Florida, then over to the coast to enjoy the sunshine and sand in Tampa, watching pelicans fly in wide circles over the beach. He slept in train yards, improvised meals with cans of corned beef around a campfire, pocketed sandwiches to accompany his nickel beer. He became adept at living on pennies a day, making it a point to be interested in everything and anyone. He went up to Mobile, Alabama, meeting two young photographic salesmen who had been abandoned on the road by their boss.
2: What a grand adventure. Dude,
1: he literally only just started.
2: Just (laughs) gliding around the the country.
1: Jumping trains and shit. Fucking several months into this adventure with these two photographic salesmen, he's down to his last 15 cents. He knew he had 25 bucks waiting for him in New Orleans, if only he could get there, so he jumped aboard a nighttime freight train headed to Louisiana. On the catwalk along the tops of the cars, clattering through the warm swamps, Fort dreamily admired the scenery. Quote Black night and the yellow swath of the headlight, like glimpses of the Gulf surf in long white lines, the fluttering of hanging moss on the trees around us.
2: Woo! Yeah, he's fucking, sitting on top of a train.
1: Yeah. He uh, they he had to jump off that train, like him and the two uh, hobos he was with, because like the uh, train inspector found him. Mm. I don't know if you know about like jumping train cars. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll break your fucking legs. This dude seemed to be really uh, friendly and was like, their buddy until they were almost at New Orleans, and he was like, you're going to work in a chain gang now. <laughs> oh, shit. And so shit. they just fucking jumped off and ran away. Yeah. <laughs> For $6, he was able to travel up the Mississippi on a slow riverboat. Up to Louisville. But he felt guilty for such extrav- extravagance and economized in Louisville again, fishing for his dinner, sleeping under the stars in the shipyard.
2: Sleeping one night on a pile of cypress lumber. Don't know why, because cotton bales and molasses bales were plentiful. Awakened away in the night by a nibbling feeling at my ankles. Aroused about, trying to steal the shoes from my feet. So <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you sleep on a pile of cypress lumber. Yeah,
1: uh, next, uh, next paragraph is also a cool. quote.
2: Treasuring and hoarding my experiences, a miser in miles, gloating over them, like, now I've got 14,875 blue ones with white foam scattered on them, green miles through palm trees, yellow over sandy stretches, black miles of nights on top of freight cars. Now, if I can get from Mobile to New Orleans, that'll make extra 15,000. Up the Mississippi to Louisville will be uh, 1,600 more. Just collecting them miles,
1: then his ass went to England for a while, <laughs> bummed around there, then returned to Brooklyn in September of 1894. Was that the end of his grand adventure? Fuck no, the wanderlust hit him again. He went north to Nova Scotia, working odd jobs as odd jobs as a day laborer, a fisherman, etc. Then back to England before buying what he thought was a ticket to South America, but it turned out to be a ticket to South Africa. So yeah. he went to South Africa. Yeah, sure. And this. On the journey south, stopping at Tenerife and St. Helena, which he fondly recalled from history books.
2: Not only where Napoleon had been, but an African island where coconuts, dates, olives, and bananas grow wild, just like the pictures and the geographies. The things I was seeing, the mania and the sensuous abandon of it, doing not another thing in the world, but storing away experiences and impressions. I, I love that he's just like... Cause he's a collector, right? Yeah. As a kid, he would collect shit. Now he's just collecting experiences. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. As many as he can get.
1: Yeah, it's fucking wild, dude. Yeah, I love it so much. He he must have remained in South Africa for months. And this time in South Africa, not only was Cape Town a thriving metropolis, but the uh, country also crackled with the dangerous conflict of British imperialism and the Transvaal Republic. Charles met soldiers of fortune, buccaneers, and filibusters who were left over from the First Boer War. Waiting for the next sparks of revolt. Raymond Fort recalled uh, his brother sent him a letter while uh, from South Africa near the end of 1895. Somehow Charles Fort had managed to get challenged to a duel by a Frenchman
2: in South Africa.
1: In South Africa, <laughs> <laughs> like Charles Fort was a gentle guy. I don't know how he got challenged to a fucking duel. I don't
2: know. It seems like he liked to fight, though.
1: Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was kind of scrappy. He was kind of scrappy. Well, the the Frenchman. You know, it was like choose your pick your weapons, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the thing, you know, swords or pistols. For accepted the challenge, but then informed the Frenchman seconds that it, the weapon he decided upon was fists. <laughs> 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 the Frenchman didn't think that fists were a fair choice, but everyone else said it was valid. So Charles beat the hell out of him. <laughs> He just, yeah. like, he, just, he straight up just beat the beat the shit out of this guy.
2: I mean, that's better than, like, what, a gun duel? Yeah, right. Because then, what, what, you just shoot each other?
1: Well, that's the little Frenchman shoots the big American, Yeah, you know? Early in 1896, Fort boarded a ship that crossed the Atlantic to South America and then went up the coast to New York. Two full years of just fucking around. He took stock of his, quote, tangled line on the map. Fort's family recalled that the end of his trip was precipitated by an illness. Malaria, probably. Careless about his health, the recurring bouts of fever and chills finally persuaded Charles to leave, to leave South Africa and return home. He had, he wrote I had 30,000 many colored vividly diversified miles hoarded experiences, impressions, hundreds of characters, the world's scenery, nothing more to see, everything in life known, only 21 years old, but now for the work of a master. Back in New York City, Charles made contact with Anna Filling, who loved hearing stories of Charles's travel. And plans for for writing his own stories as she helped nurse him back to health. Yes. And then Charles decided that the next experience he should add to his collection was that of a husband with a loving wife. So they got married. Wow. Yeah. Matt Cougar. Yeah, and like Anna, like a lot of people described her as like simple. That's rude. It is because she was. I mean, that's
2: not a bad thing.
1: It's not. It's It's not not. like no, she was like his rock. Like like they were. Yeah.
2: In fact, I think it's really important that a, a, a kooky weirdo with an awful fucking childhood probably have some really normal, stable people
1: yeah. around them. Yeah, probably. As a grounding force. Yeah, yeah. The life of a writer is not easy. And not then, either. They lived in tenement houses, and Charles's income was always uncertain. He worked odd jobs, dishwashing, etc. At one point, tried to join the army, but they wouldn't take him due to his poor eyesight.
2: Well, that's lucky for him.
1: Yep. Between 1894 and 1901, Charles worked on his autobiography, Many Parts, which remained unpublished his whole life. He kept trying to sell stories, which makes it sound as if he wasn't selling any. He was, a decent amount, but it's never enough. But as his skills improved and he found his niche, Fort started selling more and more. A formula for a number of his stories was to present an inexplicable mystery, and then explain it all with a twist at the end. Uh, Two stories set in the American Museum of Natural History. In Mystery in the Museum, the narrator, one of several street-smart young men, comments naively on the exhibits and shrewdly on the public filing past the glass case.
2: See the girl in yellow, how intense she is in examining those old skulls. In those old, in examining those old skulls, says Skinny. (laughs) And how the lady with the white feather is studying spears and arrows... The girl in yellow gives three little dabs at the lace at her throat. The lady with the white feathers smooths her hair above her ears. Then me and skinny is cynics. The female sex was only studying and examining and intent upon their own reflections in the giant. (laughs) 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 Looking where there's zoology, but seeing nothing but whether or not their hat is straight. The jewel collection at the museum presents a temptation when the museum is closed. But the would-be thief is undone by a haunting, painful annoyance that seems to chase him down the darkened
1: halls. It's revealed that uh in the very last sentence that he has upset a working display of honeybees. The haunting, painful annoyance. That's the twist.
2: Yep. The hive mind.
1: It's very fucking dreamlike and like... uh visual even even then you know what I mean like yes there's like that's what I mean like this dude was a writer he really loved words and he became known as a writer for his honest and character rich studies of people in tenement buildings the underclass of New York City his dialogue was fantastic his descriptions were second to none eventually he caught the attention of Theodore Dreiser a writer who was often in the hot seat for allegations of profanity and indecency Dreiser had published his novel Sister Carrie in 1900, which was celebrated for its brutal and honest portrayal of life and honest portrayal of sexuality. The novel and Dreiser were pilloried for the same reasons. Fort and Dreiser would become weird compatriots for the rest of Fort's life, with Dreiser being Fort's biggest proponent and booster. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: If you're more interested, to our listeners, in the history of obscenity law, profanity, how that... That yeah, yeah, yeah. In court, we have a whole episode about that.
1: Yeah, we released it. Um, like, yeah, like ten months last last winter, we did one of those. One of those. I, okay. I, I sometimes I don't know how to talk. You know, this is fine.
2: I often don't. Yeah,
1: Dreiser later recalled of Fort's work. I
2: had been in contact with the slums and every other phase of New York, for that matter, for years. The regions, the characters, the incidents that Fort's stories concerned were things I had observed, but from a different angle. These were essentially my streets, my docks, my loafers, my failures. Yet nonetheless, here they were set forth in an entirely new light. These were almost lovingly dealt with. And so understandingly, all the little social and emotional and financial problems as intimately set forth as though the people themselves were talking. Here was the sunlight, rain, clouds of dust and the smoke of tugs blackening the housewives wash the noises and smells natural to the crowded violent life he was describing. And as I read, I wish that I had been with this man when he was loafing and meditating over these trivial and yet enticing lives. Yeah, that's, that's the mark of a good writer. Yeah. 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 Like painting a scene of just like, I don't know the, the shitty towny bar yeah. and making it seem magical. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. I'm fucking absolutely. And so like Theodore Dreiser tried to get in touch with Fort and like, I got to fucking meet this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I have to, I have to work with <clears> him. <throat> and when Fort finally accepted Dreiser's invitation to meet him, uh, Dreiser describes it like this.
2: And a figure, almost a duplicate of Oliver Hardy of Laurel and Hardy, <laughs> now came briskly forward. To this day, when I see Hardy, I see Fort as he was then. That unctuous ingratiating mood those unwieldy deferential twittery mannerisms were forts then (laughs) he stood with his hat in his hand and said ah you wrote me I believe I am Charles Fort and with the tone of his voice added to all else I knew I liked him and that I would like him and that somehow he was the embodiment of the charming thing that I had read
1: I I read that that, the twittery mannerisms he's just like (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) I can imagine it
1: uh, he continues.
2: I asked him to sit down. We began an inquiry into his affairs solely because I was intrigued. At first, his replies were almost inconsequential. Yes, he was interested in short story writing, yet he thought he might do something I might be interested in. Maybe not. Anyhow, he thought he didn't want to waste my time. So he brought a couple of things with him. He fished in a rather outstanding coat pocket in which he usually kept his fists and produced two short stories written on undersized sheets of paper and a faded yellowish tint. He said shyly that I might look these over, and if they didn't interest me, he might try something else. I tried to keep him in the office and talk some more, but as I decided afterward, he was too nervous and shy to stay, and he made his way out. Here's <laughs> my stories. He just pulls
1: out from his, his like fucking them. pockets. <laughs> One of Fort's recurring characters was a, an especially shady newspaper man who told tall tales named Fryhausen.
2: So it's himself.
1: Perhaps. Or someone he worked with. Yeah. When Fryhausen is given an assignment to find some interesting Sunday story down at the docks, of course he returns with a whopper, a story about a squatter's colony. I've gotten descriptions of odd houses pieced together with old doors and roof tin. There's a cave dweller in it, and the other characters are great. There's the old woman with the 17 goats and the one-legged sailor, and not a word of it is true. I just went to Jennings and shot pool and came back to write the first thing I could think of. Yes! <laughs> Fort was a collector, and in this stage in his life, he had begun assembling also a collection of scraps of imagery. I think this is so fucking cool. It's it's wild. He would just describe things as he observed them and put the scraps of paper into this array of pasteboard boxes simulating pigeonholes, like dozens of boxes. So he just had these small scraps of paper with just these fragments of imagery co- uh, cataloged in this, like, wall of boxes. They, I love it. Yeah. Like, uh, here's, a, here's uh, an assortment of them.
2: So these are like an example of the image. This was just like boxes.
1: Yeah, these are like three of like uh, 20,000 fucking scraps of just fragments.
2: Workmen unloading a shipment of fruit. Watermelons were undulating in a green streak from a cart to the rear of Leonidas Marcy's store. Men in a line caught melons with a sharp slap on each side and turned just in time to catch another with catching and throwing in one motion. That's one. A frowzy landlord... Face splattered with red spots, face spattered with red spots, as if every one thousandth drink had rung up and registered itself there. A sea captain's forehead, exactly five wrinkles in it, as if it had been pressing upon a banjo, pressing upon banjo strings.
1: Yeah, I like it's just, I, it's just so cool. Like, I want to do that. <laughs> just describe things, write them down, just file it away. Yes. Maybe the strangest of Fort's short stories was called A Radical Corpuscle. It's about a white blood cell that pauses in, a, in the artery long enough to deliver a philosophical rant about the universe, the man they inhabit, and the purpose in life. Uh,
2: How do you pronounce that? Luke, leukocytes? Yes. Fellow leukocytes, do you know why we are placed here in this man? To get all we can out of it. "'answered a sleek, shiny corpsicle. "'The others laughed good-naturedly, "'agreeing that this was their sole reason for being. "'The agitator, leucicite, argues that the man calls his own world the Earth. "'He is a white corpsicle to the Earth. "'He says the moon causes the tide, perhaps. "'Then the moon is the Earth's heart. "'The crowd shuts him down, rejecting his philosophy. "'He says we were made for the man?' jeered the few lucid sites who gave the distasteful doctrine another thought. But we know, we have every reason to know, that this man was made for us.
1: <laughs> Dreiser encouraged Fort to write a novel, saying it needed to be his next move. Despite Fort's apparent confidence on paper, he was anything but in real life, and was intensely hard on himself.
2: Yeah, this poor schmuck trying to <laughs> crank out an actual novel-sized piece yeah, of
1: Yeah, right. Her.
2: Like, I feel like he excelled in, in scraps. And almost like um, Burroughs cut up.
1: uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what
2: it reminds me of, how he has just these boxes of fragments.
1: Yeah, it's almost like he thought too big for a novel. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like, a novel is... Yeah, like...
2: It, It calls for almost like a linear narrative, like, story. Whereas Charles was more about many parts, you know?
1: Yeah, and all... I mean, he... He wrote a novel that was apparently when he did he well, we'll get to it, but like i in a lot of ways, I think a lot of his writing was just ahead of his time. yep, he tried to be really experimental with things and people just weren't ready for it. but people like Theodore Dreiser fucking loved all of it, yeah, um yeah, but he and by 1906, he and Anna were desperately poor. uh Fort wrote in his journal. Have not
2: been paid for one story since May. Have $2 left. Watson's has cheated me out of $155. Dreiser has sent back two articles he told me he would buy. One even advertised to appear in his next number.
1: Dreiser had no idea how poor the forts were.
2: And if he had, I'm sure he would have yeah. helped out.
1: Like one day in 1907, Dreiser realized he hadn't heard from Fort in a while. Um, He went looking for him and managed to like, just by asking people, track track down the fort's address uh at 32 charles and annie were living in a terrible shabby tenement dirt fucking poor and dreiser was like beyond shocked he mostly i didn't know about as much about his friend as he thought damn like,
2: bitch you live like this
1: basically yeah exactly <laughs> um the problem was writer's block and a desire to finish his novel hence fort hadn't sold any stories in a long time
2: I gotta finish my novel.
1: Yeah. Uh, the novel, which was eventually completed, though with many massive revisions requested by Dreiser, was called The Outcast Manufacturers. It's, it's about a fella that runs what's basically a drop shipping company out of a tenement building. And then who has to, like, eventually tries to, like, go honest and, like, gets this job as, like, a laborer doing all this, like, actual working and shit. And it end, and ends up back in the tenement selling a mail order personal development course happy as a clam like <laughs> wow yeah like this dude just like running a scam goes tries to get honest fucking works his ass off hates it ends up just back and like selling a how to how to better yourself course out of I the same tenet you should
2: have stuck to scamming
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> The outcast manufacturers didn't earn a second printing, and Fort couldn't have profited more than $100 from the work.
2: I love that name, though. That that would be a great publishing company
1: name. Honestly. However, an inheritance that, although designed completely to fuck over Charles, and Charles specifically, did provide him with enough money to survive, and it meant that his ass wasn't out on the streets, now that he was neither a reporter nor a short story writer. By 1912, Charles Fort's father had died, and Fort was no closer to writing a second novel. He wrote in his journal... I am, now-
2: I am now occupied with style. Figures Know now the value of a figure lies in making a vivid picture. And to do this all and to do this, all that is required is the right word. Years ago I read of Stevenson's Delight and Search for the Master Word. I've been advised then, but I might have been advised then. But value of such a tip could not be until I was ready for it. What is the novel's reason for being? to entertain then the form of a novel cannot express entertainingness but be the instrument itself therefore the form of a novel should should all be subservient to its climax troubles distract it reading the above i return that philosophy is the reason for being climax is the form's reason for being well then it seems that there's light right here upon my troubles i've been trying to start my new book impossible Then it seems that I must round out my 10 years with a final study of philosophy.
1: So at 39 years old, Fort began collecting philosophies and research from the library, stuffing his pockets with scraps of paper with notes written all over them. Like literally as many notes as he could fit in his fucking coat pockets, he would just stuff in there. The little cardboard boxes in his apartments that once contained his collection of metaphors now started to fill up again. As before, the slips allowed him to categorize and rearrange his interests. He assembled his slips according to relationships—harmony, equilibrium, catalysts, saturation, supply and demand. Gradually, he was drawn to apparent anomalies—strange phenomena that defied neat classification. He started to discover them everywhere, prying them out of established journals and histories— after years of collecting, idly arranging and rearranging objects, phrases, or information, he now began to notice patterns. Odd patterns. hmm May 1st, 1915. He wrote to Dreiser with what is, in my opinion, one of the best crank letters in history.
2: <laughs> my dear Dreiser, I don't know whether you are now a dealer in loud noises or not, but... If you are still in the publishing or editorial calamity, I have produced some vibrations that you might like to turn loose. <laughs>
1: See, <laughs> that has such fucking swagger to it. it. Does. I fucking love it so much. <laughs> I love It's just, it's. If, if it's you're a hard. dealer in
2: loud noises, I got some fucking gas for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, Fort in his research had discovered evidence that there is an alien intelligence on Mars directing humanity with a force called X <laughs> that ever so subtly shifts human behavior. Describing X to Dreiser in the same letter, Fort wrote,
2: If, in acting upon us, X could only make use of what we should naturally do anyway. We should, if stimulated to action by X, think that we were, but following following what we call our own free wills. Then, in the search for X, we should look not for strange, seemingly supernatural phenomena, but for things that we should have done anyway. But in a lesser degree, historical events, which have heretofore been accounted for by reason, and have in them somewhere a vague mystery or an atmosphere of the unaccountable, despite all assurances of their own infallibility that our historians have given us.
1: And he finished up the letter.
2: So there it is. I've given up on fiction, you see. Or in a way, I haven't. I'm convinced that everything is fiction. So here I am in the same old line.
1: (laughs) Amen. Like what he's saying with that X shit is that like it is if an alien intelligence was it was fucking with us, It wouldn't make us do this. These extravagant strange things. We'd think we were just doing our normal normal shift. Yeah. Our normal shit. Ford's biographers all seem to think that Ford totally believed this. And I mean, yeah. And with as much like like he was into it. You know what I mean?
2: Do you think that he thought everything is fiction, or that he? Do you think he would thought? He I was think he. The fiction?
1: I think he thought everything was fiction. I don't. I'm not sold that he thought there was an alien intelligence fucking with people. However, it's specifically from Mars, it's a common thing for writers to start. Like I'm thinking about right. Philip K. Dick and shit, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. You know. It it's like a it's an early version of that thing, but it's, or I'm
2: thinking of the Earth Coincidence Commands uh exactly. whatever shit like that. Just it's a name for a thing. Yeah, call it yeah, an alien yeah. intelligence, call it whatever you want. Exactly. It's, it's the thing.
1: Fort was tapped into that. And yeah. like, yeah, Fort was getting into like the history of magic and shit, and he was he was tapping into the magic stuff, you know? Just through his own idiosyncratic pushing at he just couldn't not. Right. Yeah, exactly. Dreiser fucking yeah. Theodore Dreiser fucking loved this shit. He was so all about it. A friend and mentor to Dreiser, H.L. Mencken, um, thought that Charles Fort was a dangerous crank and that he was acting as a bad influence on Dreiser. People like Mencken and H.G. Wells, the very scientific sort, the very rational types, just did not understand what the fuck Charles Fort was Why doing. is he spreading fake news? You basically, exactly, exactly. They <laughs> didn't get it at... Just for fun. Basically, at this time, like the early 1900s, 1915... I, a lot of the same things we're dealing with now, right? Like a lot of the same social forces and shit. A lot of the same issues, um, and and so like when there was like real irration- irrationality and like kind of fundamentalist extremism and shit, causing a ruckus, it meant that people like Mencken and Wells kind of saw all playfulness as the same type of dangerous. Do you know what I mean?
2: And I feel like for a person um, such as Charles Fort or like you or me, that is only further motivating.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. <laughs> that just, like,
2: um, stokes the contrarian.
1: 100%. Within yeah. one. <laughs> they didn't gamble Fort was doing because Fort was just doing. Yeah. He caught a wild hare, as they say. Uh, Dreiser a got it. A waskily rabbit? He, they caught a waskily rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dreiser fucking got it. He wrote of X.
2: It was so strange, so forceful, and so beautiful that I thought, whether this is science or apocryphal and discarded, it was certainly one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Neither X nor its follow-up Y were ever published, but it laid the foundation for what Fort would eventually become known for. Uh, It's easy to recognize that X contained a formal, mysterious version of the same philosophy permeating the outcast manufacturers. According to Fort, we have no free will but are controlled by a powerful outside force that simulates free will. It was echoed in his own feelings of powerlessness, the inability, quote, to do things I feel I ought to do, that Fort fell in his everyday life, which was, what was significant was Fort's expression that this force, the equivalent of a godlike all-creating power, was evil and dangerous. The ending of the book promised little hope, quote, our goal is the nothingness of a nirvana-like state of mechanistic unconsciousness in which there is neither happiness nor unhappiness.
2: Have you ever read any books by Commander X? No. I'm just going to leave that there and not say anything more.
1: Alright. Yeah, word. The follow-up, Y, was all about the idea that X has a complementary force called Y that is acting upon the Earth. We now have one of these
2: Oh, this is gonna bring up one of my favorite cases ever that we should
1: Yeah. We should definitely oh, yeah, cover yeah, yeah, on yeah. the
2: podcast. Yeah. I've been meaning to, but I just haven't Oh hell yeah. Haven't gotten to it. So It's written, we now have one of those dynamic crystal situations that you sometimes speak of. There are two complementary civilizations, orthogenetically isolated, that they may reach high individual development first. Why, for reasons we'll go into, is far ahead of us. Fort proposed that...
1: Oh, that's where the... Quote ends, sorry. Okay. Fort proposed that Casper Hauser, a strange boy who stumbled into Nuremberg one day in 1828, was actually an envoy from Y. (laughs) I don't know anything about Casper Hauser.
2: I can't wait to tell you. All right. There's uh, some really interesting theories around his death, where he came from, who he was, and, and what his whole identity was. I've
1: known the name, but I know literally nothing else. Hauser exhibited odd traits like supernatural senses, but could barely communicate and did not recall any family. After making his home in Nuremberg, he was killed under puzzling circumstances, stabbed as he walked in the middle of a snowy park, no other footprints in the snow, no murder weapon.
2: Yeah, and before that, he had, like, been stabbed before, and he would tell people, like, this man just, like, came up and stabbed me, but people thought that he might have been doing it to himself. Holy shit. Like, weird story. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Very strange. Um, this
2: idea that he came for an envoy from Y. An envoy from I Y. I love yeah.
1: that. Y land, according to Fort, existed in a sort of depression or basin at the top of the earth. Uh, drawing up upon other accounts, he would document blonde Eskimos, warm climates near the North Pole, and Perry's peculiar explorations. John C. Sims' early nineteenth-century theory of a hollow Earth was, according to Fort, worthless, <laughs> but Sims had amassed a great deal of interesting data. Fort explained to Dreiser.
2: Then comes our own evidence. I have had time only to start collecting this but already have some.
1: Fort made assumptions based on the rotation of the earth and the way the heavy metals separated. Why why was a land with a mountain of gold but no iron and their civilization was based on an iron standard?
2: Yeah, women come from Venus, men come from
1: Mars. Yeah. <laughs> the climax of the book, the climax of the book would mix Fort's peculiar scientific theories with a thrilling treasure hunt. He wrote
2: Final overcoming of the physical barriers of the Arctic by adventurous aeronauts. Frenzy. Final giving up on all attempts to amass fortunes. Merging of the two races. No other forces then interfering. So, adjustment to X. Nirvana. Kismet. Amen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> X and Y were both extremely hard to sell. And by extreme, I mean impossible. He couldn't sell them. Weren't. No. Fort wrote Dreiser for a five page pitch for a film. The film version of X that had all these common tropes we see now, like here's a, here's a fucking uh, excerpt.
2: Then there's a war. The battleground is in Egypt. A battle is about to be fought near the pyramids. Camp scenes, soldiers revolting against war. Some of them fearful because an officer has overheard them. He feels the same way. Opposing armies and the pyramids. The battle can't begin. Here and there ranks are deserted. Strange call of the pyramids. Soldiers are climbing them, they don't know why. Strange attraction felt by others. Soldiers climbing the pyramids, others cheering, they are a generating force. At last mankind has learned what it is for. Vast final scene. Dancing, hosts, curtain.
1: But alas it didn't happen. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> and for year uh and for years, the manuscripts were waffled on back and forth from publishers. It's not that they weren't good, although that we don't know. Fort ended up destroying both of them. But they never existed. But mostly, Fort was just saying shit about science that was preposterous.
2: And improvable. Yeah. It probably pissed scientists.
1: It was preposterous. The spirit of the time was very rational, very modern. By the end of 1916, publisher Carl Brandt was considering the manuscripts of X and Y, but seemed to be dragging his feet, doubting the contents, asking for a list of other publishers who had turned down the books. Uh, Fort crumbled to Dreiser, strange orthogenetic gods have deserted me. (laughs) He thought he might never write again. Yet in 1918, Fort wrote to Dreiser, I have discovered Z.
2: Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, The secret third thing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: A year of compliments and criticisms on X and Y convinced him that his evidence in those books was stranger and more phenomenal than the accounts of ghosts that wrapped on tables or moaned in Victorian parlors. Fort discovered it wasn't merely houses that were haunted, but reality itself. Yes. Yeah. Our textbooks are haunted. Our sciences and understandings are haunted. He later explains his process.
2: I wrote a book that expressed very little of what I was trying to do. I cut it down from 500 or 600 pages to 90 pages, then I put it away. It was not what I wanted. But the force of the 40,000 notes had been modified by this book. (laughs) Nevertheless, the power or the hypnotism of them, or the hypnosis of them, orthodox notes, all of them, orthodox materialism. Tyndall says this, Darwin says that. Authoritativeness, positiveness, chemists and astronomers and geologists have proved this or that. Nevertheless, monism and revolt were making me write that not even are twice 2-4, except arbitrarily and conventionally. The oneness of allness, one cosmic flow called disorder, unreality, inequilibrium, ugliness, discord, inconsistency, the other called order, realness, equilibrium, beauty, harmony, justice, truth.
1: That's kind of what his whole philosophy started to become. But like... That, but also both things at the same time.
2: Everything, all
1: at once. Everything, yeah, all at once, yeah. Z would become Fort's first and arguably most famous book, The Book of the Damned. Instead of assembling his data to support a theory, he treated these oddities like his characters in The Outcast Manufacturers or his short stories, releasing them in front of his audience and then stepping back to watch them perform, whispering suggestions in the reader's ear, playing the master of ceremonies with wry comments and observations. And as luck would have it, Dreiser was in a position where he was owed some favors and could guarantee its publication. Fort's enthusiasm was bubbling over. In a letter to Dreiser, he wrote,
2: My dear Dreiser, I'm very much astonished to learn that you've been talking about me behind my back. I've just received a note from Bonnie and Liverite telling me that you've been saying things about me. But like most atheists, I'm a good Christian. (laughs) I not only forgive you, but I have honored you. I've invented something. I've named it after you. It's a meatless cocktail. You take a glass of beer and put a live goldfish in it. Instead of a cherry or olive or such things that occur to a commonplace mind, you gulp. The sensation of enclosing a squirm is delightfully revolting. I think it's immoral. I've named it the Dreiser Cocktail. (laughs) Like moth ACs, I'm a good This is so fucking funny. Fucking slurp that goldfish.
1: <laughs> the sensation of enclosing a squirm is delightfully revolting. I think it's immoral. I have named it the Dreiser cocktail. It's so goddamn funny and endearing. Yeah, that goldfish. <laughs> it's just sweet. In the spring of, tw- of <laughs> 1919, when Fort completed the book, he sent it to Dreiser with a letter that said,
2: Dreiser, I send you this afternoon by express, the Book of the Damned. It is a religion. Our beer man comes Tuesdays. Fort. (laughs) It is a religion. It is a
1: religion. Dreiser wrote of guaranteeing its publication.
2: I took it, the Book of the Damned, direct to my personal publisher, Horace Liveright, and laying the book on the table, told him to publish it. And when, after a week or so, he announced, but I can't do it. We'll lose money. I said, if you don't publish it, you'll lose me.
1: So the book was published. Fuck yeah. Yeah.
2: We'll lose money. Who cares?
1: Right. Four outlined the main philosophy of his book, the idea of intermediate existence between the positive and negative, and that all things aspire to positiveness or realness. He wrote,
2: Here is the aspect that you can point out and spread yourself upon. You can fly with this. If I were you, I'd take up this one subject, something like this. Here's a book that seems to answer the everlasting question. What is the good of it all? If religions come and religions go and if sciences rise by displacing superstitions only to be found out later as delusions, what's the good of a false, frail thing? If it'll be pushed out of the way by something that will in turn be derided.
1: I'm thinking of uh, there was um, uh, Chuck Klosterman wrote a book uh, about uh, I forget what the the book was about. I heard like this interview with him when he was like promoting it. Uh, He like asked scientists. Like what they thought would be uh, the silly thing that was looked back on in a hundred years, and I'm I'm thinking about how like every one of these five scientists had an answer, except for fucking Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah, who was like nothing. We figured it all out. Like literally, he was just like, no, no, we've we 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 won't have any of those. And it was just like, wow, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like this idea, like what's the point in like hanging your hat on this fucking. Like, science has proved this thing, knowing that science is just fall. Continually fall, fall.
2: disproves itself. Yeah, 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 yeah. as more information is added.
1: Uh, Fort believed that the striving towards positiveness was its own goal. He offered Dreiser the example of an early Christian in the time of Nero.
2: There's nothing to him but the quasi-soul of a hack poet or a swineherd. There's nothing to him to mark a self or a soul. Nose of one parent, eyes of the other. Even his laugh is like his grandmother's. His flesh and bones are only shifted matter. He's nothing but an expression of relations. Whatever it may have been, relation of some kind, sex relation perhaps, something had led him into Christianity. Now he stands, condemned to the lions. They've given him a final push and left him in the arena, shouting and creaking, a famished, lumbering thing looking to the right and snarling to the left, but making straight for him, the good of it all. That's its functioning. The Christian with his face in the dirt, turns erect. He casts wide his arms and looks up to the heavens. The lion may spring or not, but be damned to him. The Christian shouts to the rabble, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely. Something goes up from that arena. It is now in the positive absolute. So this is the new dominant, and so it is functioning. And then the waning of it, because it comes into power, because it no longer offers material for positiveness. It has beaten down all opposition because then to say what that early Christian had said would be mouthing commonplaces.
1: Rising, passing away, a wheel that turns and yep, turns, endless it cycles. Turns. <laughs> We think about the 1920s as the jazz age, the roaring 20s. Everything's fucking, it's when things got fun, finally.
2: Like, kind of, but no. Kind of,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It only got fun because it was oppressive.
1: It it was, yeah, and it was only fun for certain people, right? Yeah, exactly. It was a decade of topsy-turvy priorities. Flagpole sitters, dance marathon winners, goldfish swallowers, hoodlums became popular heroes. Warren G. Harding's gray conservatism continued with the famously grim Calvin Coolidge. And there was also fucking prohibition. Yeah, like, people forget alcohol was illegal in the 1920s. The Book of the Damned was published on January 1st, 1920. And after reading it, H.L. Mencken wrote to Theodore Dreiser in disbelief. He wrote,
2: Dear Dreiser, I've just read Fort's Book of the Damned and note your remarks upon the slipcover. If they're authentic, what is the notion that you gather from this book? Is it that Fort seriously maintains that there's an upper Sargasso Sea somewhere in the air and that all the meteors, blood, frogs, and other things he lists dropped out of it? The thing leaves me puzzled. (laughs) So you expect me to believe this
1: shit? Yeah. I mean, like, why I picked Charles Fort to do this is because I was, like, thinking about what I wanted to cover. I I knew what I want to cover for my next couple of series, but I just grabbed the Book of the Damned off my shelf.
2: It's a good way to do it.
1: Opened up to a page that was about a rain of raw meat in Kentucky on my birthday. Like...
2: Yeah, and it felt...
1: I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. That's fuck a sign. Yeah. yeah, that's hilarious. Guess whose job it was to advertise the Book of the Damned?
2: Nobody's. Now who?
1: Edward Bernays. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was working for the publisher at the time. That was one of his clients. And Go listen to our bonus series for an episode on Edward Bernays. That's... Two weeks in a row, we've been able to pitch that. that
2: <laughs> propaganda, propaganda. Hell
1: yeah. Bernays didn't understand the Book of the Damned. <laughs> he had he did not fucking get it. About, yeah,
2: that's because Bernays thought he was the one trying to psyop everybody. Yeah, right. He's like, what do you mean the universe is psyoping all of us? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> like, <laughs> it exactly. It can't be. I know everything. Right.
1: About half the people who read the Book of the Damned loved it for various reasons and half fucking hated it.
2: Divisive, I see.
1: Very divisive. Between 1920 and 1922, uh, Charles and Annie—actually, I wanted to—I actually brought my, my copy of it. Oh, it was hell like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just, like—this is just from our general expression. That the state that is commonly and absurdly called existence is a flow, or a current, or an attempt from negativeness to positiveness, and is intermediate to both. By positiveness, we mean harmony, equilibrium, order, regularity, stability—or, we already did that— I conceive of one intercontinuous nexus, which is, expresses itself in astronomic phenomena and chemic, biologic, psychic, sociologic, that it is everywhere striving to localize positiveness, that to this attempt in various fields of phenomena, which are only quasi-different, we give different names. We speak of the system of the planets and not of their government, but in considering a store, for instance, and its management, we see that the words are interchangeable, it used to be customary to speak of chemic equilibrium, but not of social equilibrium. That false demarcation has been broken down. We shall see that by all these words, we mean the same state. As everyday conveniences are in terms of common illusions. Of course, they are not synonyms. To a child, an earth an earthworm is not an animal. It is to the biologist. He figured out cybernetics. Yeah. It's, it's another thing. And yeah, as I, as I said, like there's been enough... That's been done about the strange cases in these books that I don't want to harp on them too much. yeah,
2: just go over it again yeah
1: it's it's not necessarily worth it, I think. I mean, fucking read it like it's hard The Book of the Damned is a difficult read, but I think it's really worth it. If you're into language, like mm-hmm. if you're into fucking language games, read Charles for it. so between nineteen twenty 1920 and nineteen twenty two Charles and Annie split their time between New York and London, actually for much longer than uh nineteen twenty two like they started just splitting their time between. New York and London, because mm-hmm. Charles was conducting research for his follow-ups to the Book of the Damned, called first one called New Lands. Uh, he was conducting research at the whatever the library in London is, perhaps the British Library or whatever the hell, mm-hmm. Royal Library. You can always It's always a safe bet to call it the Royal Library if you're talking about something. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But New Lands was not actually about land. It was about the sky. How about that? Every afternoon Fort took on loftier pursuits. He focused on astronomical phenomena, suspecting that there were unexpected core connections between the planets, earthquakes, meteors and explosions in the sky. British Museum. That's where he was doing his research. And the British Museum was the best place to go for all this for all this research. Well, New Lands was published in 1923. It was full of examples of ridiculous predictions that were hailed and then discovered to be wildly off, of planets that weren't where they were supposed to be, of comets that never came back, of infighting between astronomers and astonishing miscalculations of physical phenomena. Charles ridiculed proofs of the shape of the Earth, the speed of light, triangulation, and spectroscopic observations. He doubted Kepler and noted how Newton had used his mathematics to predict planetary motion as well as the Old Testament's prophecies of Daniel. He also wondered with the same troublemaking attitude that accompanied the the theories of the Book of the Damned, whether the world really is round, if it isn't stationary, whether the moon and stars aren't really much closer than we suspect, and whether there isn't a shell surrounding the Earth, quote, in which the stars are openings, admitting light from an existence external to the shell.
2: Yeah, we in the egg.
1: Yeah. I think that's what, like, orthogenic means, right? Is it? I should probably look that up. No. Yeah, ortho... Orthogenesis is an obsolete biological hypothesis hypothesis that organisms have an innate tendency to evolve in a definite direction towards some goal teleology due to some internal mechanism or driving force. According to the theory, the largest scale trends in evolution have an absolute goal such as increasing biological complexity. Prominent figures who have championed some form of evolutionary progress include Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, Pierre Taylor de Chardin, and Henri Bergson. So then that's yeah, that's and that's kind of what I figured cuz like there's a definite—I can see the influence of Taylor Deschardins' work in Fort. It's like the, the newospheric thing, the fucking increasing positiveness, the omega point shit, right? right. Yeah. Which, like, it, 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 Taylor Deschardins deserves an episode, too. That dude turned out to be—he had some interesting ideas. He turned out to be a fucking racist but
2: It'd be like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Especially like, you know, actually, it doesn't matter what time you're looking at. It
1: doesn't. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say especially in this era, but no, in yeah, any era.
1: In any era, yeah. You um, think, oh,
2: this guy's ideas are kind of cool. Let me read about this. Oh, this is oh,
1: oops, fascist. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, t- it, from what I, means, I understand, Teilhard de Chardin went further into that the older he got and shit. So he does seem right. like someone which you is can, to say
2: like, that. Like his work from his younger years uh, contains valid ideas
1: or even all of it. You can find valid ideas in anything, in anything. You can also call someone a piece of shit when they delve into piece of shit territory. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's not mutually exclusive. Sometimes
2: Michael Jackson made some bops.
1: Yeah, dude. (laughs) You can't fuck with some Michael Jackson tunes. Yes. Some Michael Jackson songs are the best there's ever going to be that's just true it is and it's okay to say
2: that <laughs> <laughs> yep um it doesn't mean that i support pedophilia either
1: no it doesn't but it's a good thing we we have a podcast because like you got to dig deep to find the shit you can really blackmail us with
2: right that's no, true you have to listen to hours of yeah.
1: in new lands uh fort wrote
2: that our existence a thing within our solar system or supposed solar system is a stricken thing that is mewling through space shocking able-minded healthy systems with the sores of its sun, its ghastly moons, its civilizations that are all broken out with sciences. A celestial leper, holding out doddering expanses into which charitable systems drop golden comets. If it be the leprous thing that our findings seem to indicate, there is no encouragement for us to go on. We cannot discover. We can only betray new symptoms. If I be part of such a stricken thing, I know of nothing but sickness and sores and rags to reason with. My data will be pustules. My interpretations will be inflammations.
1: Uh, <laughs> I just remembered. Like, it was really Theodore Dreiser that was super into the orthogenesis thing, and like was really into like those writers like Theodore Chardin and shit. Mm-hmm. And they in the Fort biography I read. There's definitely the suggestion that X and everything that came after it was. Sort of just a psy op on Dreiser. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was definitely just psy op on Dreiser. Oh yeah. yeah. So Newlands, like that, was where the first uh, instances of like the phantom airships, allegedly seen years before the airship was actually invented, shows up. Uh, also included were descriptions of floating phantasmal cities, we- like, like this entry. What's up? Can we what?
2: Well, I see. I really like what Fort did here. Is because he takes things that pre-exist stories that that predate everything like this idea of floating cities like that's in in a lot of eastern religions yeah yeah, yeah. and he takes these things that already have existed throughout time but makes them feel new
1: yeah Um, well so what he really did and actually i should actually like stress this because we're not like going into the depths of the content of the books he would just find correlations and confirming mm -hmm. stories and weird like syncs between data from over here at this time and over here at this time and over here at this time and like these scientific explanations can't all be true if all these stories exist and it's just this he like he cites all these fucking sources he cites all of his sources
2: i feel like he is unique in the regard that he synthesized all this information not to sell like a, a religion, like theosophy, which is also like a synthesized sort of, yeah. You know, it t- it takes parts from different things to say here. Look, this uh, equates to some sort of cosmic truth. Fort kind of spits in the face of a, a cosmic truth and says that it's it's he's, all a lie.
1: He's trying to crack the egg. Yeah. Right. You know what yes. I mean? Like he's trying to crack the fucking skull of the reader. Yeah. Yeah. With just this honest. And a muppet falls out. God damn it! <laughs> uh, there's like like uh, this entry.
2: March 16, 1890, that at 4 o'clock in the afternoon of March twelfth, in the sky of Ashland, Ohio, was seen a representation of a large unknown city. Observers thought they recognized Sandusky, 60 miles away. The more superstitious declared that it was a vision of the New Jerusalem. May have been a revelation of heaven, and for all I know, heaven may resemble Sandusky. And those of us who have no desire to go to Sandusky may ponder that point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Newlands was Fort's most serious book in tone, and consequently the least well received. It seemed genuine in its critique of astronomy and science, which pushed it dangerously close towards the realm of genuine crank literature. Uh huh. You know, but in a in a letter to Edmund Hamilton, like Fort was also accused of, like, you know, uh, criticizing science. Like, to, to, accused of being on the side of religion. Because he criticized a lot of science, right. you if know you're what I mean.
2: Anti-science, you must be what pro-religion?
1: Something like that. that's yeah. I mean, you know, you know anti-progress. how progress. Yeah, you if know how you it criticize goes.
2: science, you must hate progress and rationality and logic.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, nothing ever changes, man.
2: Okay, so he he writes in a letter
1: in a letter to Edwin, Edmund Hamilton. Fort admitted the difficulty of criticizing science.
2: It is quite, as you say, poor old theology hammered all around but science, the great immune. And as far as I know, mine are about the only books of impoliteness to scientific dogmas written by one who is not the theological bias. Yeah, that is what made him unique. Every now and then I get a letter from somebody who thinks I'm some kind of fundamentalist simply because I don't take in without questioning everything that scientists tell us. But I think I made it plain in the books that I'm not out to restore Moses.
1: The reception to Newlands was a disappointment to Fort, who seemed to have at this point gotten very good at his research skills. But he pushed on and occupied his time by making even more of a name for himself, writing various letters to the various editors of the newspapers around the country, all full of doubt for literally fucking everything. On July 27th, 1924, the Philadelphia Public Ledger published a letter from Fort.
2: It is said that upon the morning of the 19th of July at Hobdis Mills, Pennsylvania, after a severe rainstorm, the ground was found to be covered with bright red lizards, roads and fields scarlet with them. They were an inch and a half long, row of small black spots on each side. It seems that they were all alive. In two hours, all had crawled out of sight. If anybody can send information to me at my present address, it, it may be that we can have data upon a fall from the sky of living creatures unknown upon this earth. If living things can come to this earth from other worlds, we have the material for visions. Such as have not excited imaginations upon this earth since the year 1492.
1: Charles Nanny also adopted two parrots. And yeah. Fort did the most incredible crazy guy thing I can imagine.
2: Get, as a person that's very interested in like feedback loops, yeah. to get a parrot, like two parrots as pets, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really yeah. A move. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. For also, he, he invented a new type of checkers, the game. Okay. He called it Super Checkers. Oh, wow. At the end of 1928, Fort sent a letter to the New York Sun addressed, to the what-do-you-think editor, he outlined elements of his game. He used slightly less than 400 pieces on a game surface of 800 squares. Each player began by massing the pieces in a formation. Fort preferred two wedges meeting at their points. It's an interesting game and far more military or pseudo-military than either chess or ordinary checkers. Fort compared the mass movements to troop movements. One player would begin moving pieces, for example, about 100, until the second player told him to stop. Then the second player makes a similar number of moves. This might be repeated in flanking maneuvers. Fighting would then take place one piece at a time, as in regular checkers. Then the players would go back to battle tactics, concentrations, raids, ambuscades, feints, and other strategies. I want to play this. I do too, but here's the thing. Fort loved this fucking game. and would try to get everyone and anyone to play it with him. It seemed like no one else could ever work out how to play it.
2: Because there's no rules. And the
1: rules even confuse Charles from time to time.
2: Yeah, you're just moving shit around. Yeah. And seeing what happens.
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and seeing
2: how the game goes that time. That's
1: all he's ever done. <laughs> Ford had finished his third book by 1928, but interest in publishing it was little. His eyesight was also starting to fail him. His health was going fucking bad at this point. He wasn't that old. He was in his... Mid-50s.
2: Live fast, die young, bad girls do it well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he and Annie returned to New York permanently. For months, he had avoided telling Dreiser that he was back in New York, waiting for like, some good news to send him, like either the sale of a book or a bit of new research, that, so he could send Dreiser a cheery letter. But the Wall Street crash at the end of October 1929 eliminated any optimism and filled Fort with self-doubt. Uh, Fort treated his depression as a scientific experiment, writing,
2: For a month at the end of each day, I had set down a plus sign or a minus sign, indicating that, in my opinion, life had or had not been worth living that day.
1: (laughs) He was surprised to find that the pluses had won the game, finished.
2: It is not dignified to be optimistic. (laughs) I'm I'm glad he found the optimism Yeah. Look at that, Uh, more pluses than minuses.
1: Reluctantly. Um, He also wrote around the same time,
2: I think that I, too, am coming to an end. My general health is very good, but I'm almost blind in the right eye and the left eye is going. I've gone over my papers, sorted them, and packed away my notes, as if quite clearly understanding that my time is coming. I cannot stand living in blindness. I've made arrangements for Annie. Yeah, as a man that's obsessed with taking in information to lose
1: one of the
2: main centers
1: of... Especially his imagery. Yep. That's his, like, strongest fucking...
2: Right.
1: Yeah. His most intriguing experiment around this time was a hybrid of his short fiction and his research. It was called uh, The The Giant, the Insect, and the Philanthropic-Looking Old Gentleman. It was a story about Charles Fort. He was a character in this. It was fiction. He started by explaining the nature nature of his research.
2: I have 48,000 notes. I've been through everything. Chemistry, meteorology, sociology, electricity magnetism architecture music psychology astronomy ethics over to the library in the morning out for dinner pencil and pad with knife and fork in front of me back to the library home to take more notes until bedtime notes piling up on the mantelpiece and when about three thousand are there i classify them so i wore out my eyesight and pencils and breeches material and got my coat all shiny at the elbows for a theory that I had never tested because to do so would be rationality of the second degree, which isn't human.
1: The story was basically about Fort using his extensive notes as a mystery solving device. Like like the fictional Charles Fort meets with a man who suspects that an odd crime is being committed, like a a doctor has been replaced by a fake doctor. Oh God. And Fort with his cross-disciplinary mountain of notes is able to find like these strange correlations and crack the case like fucking Sherlock Holmes or something.
2: I love it. it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's oh wicked cool. <laughs> like, and then what do you do with that information? Right?
1: Of like, <laughs> uh, This wasn't finished or sold, but in the intro, Fort writes something that I find interesting.
2: That all things are one. That all phenomena are governed by the same laws that whatever is true... Or, what we call true of planets, plants, and magnets is what we call true of human beings. That if, among such widely dissimilar phenomena as the moon, the alimentary canal of the anteater, and glacial erosions, we can discover uniformities. There, we have the associations of events commonly called laws, which may be equally in control of human affairs. That with uniformities discovered, we can apply them to our own affairs, controlling, preventing, predicting, utilizing, as has been the way in chemistry, for instance, or as is done in all the old established sciences.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's above, so below. (laughs) That old song and fucking dance. Yes. Uh, In 1930, Fort met a super fan, one Tiffany Thayer. It's a a guy. They named him weird back then.
2: Oh, I love a man named Tiffany. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This guy kind of sucks. But Tiffany was an actor turned advertising man and upon meeting Fort, he realized he could help him publish his third book in the series that started with The Book of the Damned. The original title, Skyward Ho, is objectively terrible. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's me. The Skyward Skyward.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thayer suggested the title Lo because astronomers have always been pointing to the sky saying, "Lo." L like O, it. yeah. It's it's better than Skyward Ho. Much better. Um, then he took it to a publisher he knew and he got the deal done. Tiffany Thayer is the guy who start the, started the Fortean Society, the club of Fort's disciples who would catalog everything and continue the tradition of Fort's doubting everything. We'll get back to them at the end. Lowe is Fort's most successful book stories of bleeding statues, fish falls, mysterious airships, all that. Lowe is probably the book that contains all the stuff that Charles Fort's known for these days. Um, however, it did not include the story of a talking dog. Uh, Fort wrote. Some
2: of us have taken Jehovah, and and some of us take Allah to despise or to be amused with. To give us limits within, which seem to be, every mind must practice exclusions. I draw my line at the dog who said, good morning, and disappeared in a thin greenish vapor. He is a symbol of the false and arbitrary and unreasonable and inconsistent limit which everybody must somewhere set, in order to pretend to be. You can't fool me with that dog story. <laughs> oh, it's true. I, you can't fool me with that dog story. Maybe, maybe the scarlet salamanders really did fall from the sky, but a talking dog, that's too
1: <laughs> That's his arbitrary fucking limit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, mm <mm-mm. laughs> That dog did not talk.
1: Uh, Lowe is also the first place the word teleportation occurs. He invented Whoa. that word, yeah. Uh, another of Fort's specialty <laughs> cases was disappearing objects, objects that would disappear and reappear under mysterious circumstances, which is just me. It's just my life constantly. Yeah. it definitely was just an ADHD rattled son of a bitch.
2: No, they're teleporting your, your belongings.
1: One? There's one that fucks with me to this day. hmm I will never fucking understand it. My pendulum.
2: Yeah, the bag of shrimps.
1: The bag of fucking shrimps. That's weird. <laughs> That's weird as fuck, dude. We told that that was on another. Yeah, the I, I forget insurance. What a fucking episode we talked about that. No, I do. I fucking, I got this pendulum in Amsterdam. I left it on the seat of my car. I knew it was there, but then it was gone, and searched high and low for it all over the goddamn place. When I found it, it was on the same seat. Mm, yeah. It was. It was my souvenir from my trip abroad. It was my pendulum. It's my. I like. I use a pendulum a lot. I. That thing wasn't on the fucking seat.
2: And then it was. It probably
1: was on the seat. It was clear. But I don't don't know. know. I don't I don't know.
2: I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'll be reading a sentence and watch the sentence change in real
1: time. Well, that's can't fool me with that dog story. (laughs) (laughs) Fort's last book, finished in less than a year, was called Wild Talents. It was written as Fort's It was written as Fort's health was fading. He was less and less mobile and had almost completely lost his eyesight. Wild Talents was about People with extraordinary abilities, wild talents, people that could do weird shit. He also, in Wild Talents, summed up his philosophy uh, eloquently and simply.
2: That everything that is desirable is not worth having. That happiness and unhappiness are emotional rhythms that are so nearly independent of one's circumstances that good news or bad news only stimulate the amplitude of these waves without affecting the ratio of ups to downs or that one might as well try to make in a pond waves that are altitudes only as to try to be happy without suffering equal and corresponding unhappiness.
1: Try to make waves that, that only have the crests and not the troughs.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. A lot of people get themselves caught in like not, not getting very high highs then, you know? Yeah. They don't want to, they're too scared to, you know, I don't know. Scared to feel.
1: Some of us Uh, only live in the troughs.
2: Yes. (laughs) Some of us, our graphs look like...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Looks like a fucking saw wave. Yep. Fine.
2: (laughs) Not a bottle of ketchup can fall from a tenement house fire escape in Harlem without being noted. Not only by the indignant people downstairs, but even though... But even though infinitesimally, universally maybe, affecting the price of pajamas in Jersey City... The temper of somebody's mother-in-law in in Greenland. The demand in China for rhinoceros horns for the cure of rheumatism, maybe. Because all things are interrelated, continuous, of an underlying
1: oneness. Chaos theory.
2: Fucking Like chaos chaos
1: mathematics, yeah. Yeah. The cause of Fort's failing health was leukemia. Uh, He didn't like doctors. He didn't like going to doctors. He was stubborn about that shit. He didn't like taking medicine. It's so also before.
2: Well, you heard about that doctor that wasn't really a doctor.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was also, you know, 19, the early 1930s, right? Like, uh, as it got worse and worse, he became confined to his bed. His journal entries leading up to this are like, pretty fucking heartbreaking. I'm just like, I didn't that want to. His eyesight's him. failing. Yeah. His last few months were spent with just Annie by his side. Um, Theodore Dreiser recalled of that time.
2: One of the things that Fort said at this time, rather impressively, was that it was true that he had not known how to live, but that he would show me how to die.
1: I think he knew how to live, honestly.
2: I, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: And now he's learning how to die.
1: On Tuesday night, May third, uh, nineteen thirty-two, with Aunt Annie at his bedside, Fort went in and out of consciousness. Shortly before midnight, he suddenly called out,
2: "Drive them out, Dreiser! Drive them out!"
1: Then he repeated,
2: "Drive them out."
1: At 11.55 p.m., Charles Fort died. He was 57 years old.
2: Interesting last words. Very.
1: I don't understand it. Dreiser wasn't even there. I don't, yeah, very strange last, uh, but you can-
2: I'm just imagining that he, he watched, like, the hounds of Tindalos, like, forming yeah, right. from the, the corners of his wall, just- Jesus Christ. A kind of cloud of smoke to come and seize him and bring him back to the the <laughs> ones. Just, come on back, buddy. He's like, no, Dreiser, drive them out.
1: Strange last words. Haunting, actually, one might say. Yeah. Uh, You can find all sorts of stuff very easily about Fortean phenomena. I wanted to take a look at who the dude was, and honestly, I'm still a little perplexed, but I really like him. Of course, after his death, many of his disciples revealed that they, too, had completely missed the point, with Tiffany Thayer trying his own hand at Fortean writing, but taking it and himself far too seriously, as well as verging into the territory of paranoid conspiracy theory leading up to World War II.
2: Happens, um, to, uh, yeah. happens to a lot of people.
1: I mean, I also hate the fucking government, but that wasn't Charles Fort. Charles Fort was a writer who was enamored with words and what words could do. And I'd like to emphasize two things. One, from the Book of the Damned onwards, what people point to is the unassailable quantity of data Fort has produced in his research. Case after case after case that altogether defy any explanation to come up with a theory of all of it, and also with his sources cited. But two... His earlier works were all about shady newspaper men who, instead of reporting on things like a minister's sermon like they were supposed to, would go out, get drunk, and then write their own sermons for the paper. I haven't seen it discussed. I wonder if it is, but I have to wonder if part of Fort's bit was critiquing how we communicate through writing.
2: And language in general.
1: Yeah, exactly. As he doubted scientists and experts in all other fields, I have to wonder if his doubt in writers, which was clearly expressed in his earlier work, wasn't baked into the Book of the Damned from the outset. But to see Fort's work solely as a meta-commentary on writing itself would also be missing the point. I think Fort, more than anything else, was just having fun with it and saying shit because he could and was good at it. Which is a pastime I certainly love as well. Yeah. And that's what I have for Charles Fort. And I think
2: this the star
1: is the most perfect part. It's so perfect. It's so fucking perfect. It's it's the hope after despair, right? It's also it's uh the Trump of Aquarius, which is is this it's this idea of this implicit order in the universe that you might not be able to understand. That there is sense, but you can't understand it. That there's something going on. There's something else happening that you can kind of trust in right
2: mm-hmm. at least for a time until it goes away and then it's disorder again because everything happens in cycles
1: but that it's that cycle but it, that cycle that's that's the cycle of the and
2: depend on exactly the feedback loops
1: the feedback loops the fucking interconnectedness the oneness that that meaning itself exists mm-hmm. even if your brain's too small to handle that you
2: can pull from the waters and then yeah pour it back on the earth
1: yeah 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 and i think that and and just the the imagery of the star looking out into the horizons and like breaking the imagination open into fearlessly letting in all possibilities. Yes. And
2: And then of course like the 8 8 pointed stars in the Rider-Waite Smith deck is very like I don't know that feels like hyper chaos.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, I don't know the star has is a card that's always like eluded me, but I'm getting a better sense for it now. I think. To me
2: it's it's illuminating. In a different way than like the moon or the sun. Yeah,
1: a bigger way.
2: A much bigger way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, think yeah, in yeah. a more important way. In that, to me, the star almost like it's a sign of. I mean, this man lived his true will.
1: Yeah, I think so. He did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he followed
2: yeah. his calling. He did what what he had to do.
1: I think so. I think um, absolutely. Well, I was just I was just thinking about like the just the idea that like stars were breaks in the egg. It's the shining through that there's something else mm-hmm. outside just the confines of Right. What you this can idea see. that
2: like that's confounded humans forever. when we look up in the night sky and we see these little bits of light. We yeah, think, what is that? And the
1: thing is, in a metaphorical sense, they are that. They are breaks in the fucking egg that confines our our yeah. little reality. As far it, as we know. it Well, it's just in you know, a like literary sense, it, seeing those things is the promise that there is more.
2: Something up there. And
1: that's a promise. Like I was saying at the start, that the, the knowledge that there is more is comforting to me.
2: Right. It's interesting, too, that he um, poo-pooed Hollow Earth and was like, no, 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 it's above.
1: Yeah, but like, I think he was just having fun with it. Yeah, no. I think he was just arbitrarily taking things. There's like, nah, I don't like Yeah, no. And you can't fool me with that talking dog. But here's fucking some other crazy bullshit. like that.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I'm going to make my own crazy bullshit. I reject yours.
1: I love that so much. It's such, it's such a snarky, shitty thing to do and like shitty in the best way you know he like was invited to there's so much stuff that i had to leave out but like he was invited to like join the 40 society he was like not if it has my name on it i'm not fucking doing that <laughs> get out of here with that shit it's just a really i don't know endearing character I, I fucking really love charles fort and like even though some of his writing especially in the book of the damned is like difficult it's Really cool writing. It's a style that I've never seen before or or since. The
2: we is so interesting to me. It's yeah. like how I was thinking about um the nature of thought, how oftentimes, sometimes I think an I, sometimes I think you.
1: I'll mm. be doing something mm. and this
2: thought will occur to me and it'll be like, you shouldn't do that.
1: Right, right, Wait, right. You,
2: who are you? T- who was that yeah Who was that in my head talking to me yeah
1: yeah so this, yeah this
2: we is almost like he combined the i and the you him and the divine together talking like he's never alone it's
1: yeah something else or like he you know he's the guy that remembers it but like he also feels like he's a different person than he was then like like past him
2: and obviously he had to disassociate a fuck ton during his childhood
1: yeah so yeah, he yeah, just yeah. got
2: adept at feeling like i don't know probably detached from self slightly which enables one to uh transcend Reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent.
2: And has period of wandering also really helped with that, I'm sure. Yeah. I'd like one of those.
1: A period of wandering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um all right. Well, that well, about does it.
2: If you'd like more, wander on over to our Discord, our Patreon. W-
1: wander on over to our Patreon. Get access to bonus episodes on for just five dollars a month and you also get access to our patron Discord where you can chat. With all sorts of other interesting weirdos. Talk about all this shit with us. It's fun. Come on over. Get our shared
2: dreaming experiment. Yes. wait, you're already taking part in it.
1: Me? You? Them? Everybody. Everybody. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We also have a St. Germain reporting hotline. I'm going to play the one from last week. Yes, please. I'm going to have to fucking log into my goddamn Google account again, though. Because... Wait, am I still still logged in? Yes, we have an emergency Saint Germain reporting hotline. If you see the fucking bastard, you call us. You, if you tell us. You see something, say something. You see something, say something. And we've got we have a uh
2: Do we have a message?
1: We do. We've got one.
2: Got a live one.
1: We got a live one, folks. All right. Let's go.
0: This is such fantastic, you guys. Oh, my God. Um. Okay, so I'm driving uh, on a very long road right now, so I have a lot of free time. And I, I've i been meaning to reach out about some St. Germain, or more so church, universal, triumphant bullshit that I have been meaning to talk about for a while. Uh, first, I thought you guys were in New York. You're not. Fuck, I'm from New York initially, but I was raised in California. I lived in Topanga for about ten years, which is, you know, the neo-hippie, uh, I guess New Age cesspool Vortex. Um, it's great, beautiful, a lot of great practices come through too as New Age spirituality that goes, but the history is usually buried. So anyway, what I mean to say there is um there still is a presence of people from the church universe, people that directly acted and worked as disciples underneath uh, uh what's her name? Their prophet. Um They still have a restaurant out there. It is in Topanga Canyon proper, uh, like by the main um, strip mall area. And if you guys, one of you, both of you, ever get into the ability of coming to this coastline, I implore you to come out there and try their their, their all-you-can-eat brunch or breakfast. It's like $35.00 absolutely mediocre but it's a buffet, so like you know you can gorge on buffet food all day. And you're next to the the beautiful convergence of these two uh dried out rivers, um oh, as industrial goes, uh that smells like a putrid, like just dead fish tank. Um so they're, they're thriving alive and out here. Uh and yeah, I've I've plenty more things to talk about. The Saint Germain foundation things too like the the liqueur. St. Germain, the elderflower liqueur. Let's get into that for a second. Why, w- what if that was when he filled up that creamy cup from his um, phone? What if it was just, like, whipped, aerated St. Germain liqueur? It have been an alcoholic background rather than drinking cup, but maybe it was a mixture of both. Who knows? Um, on that note, uh, there's no more notes. I, I note this there's usually a minute or so limit on voice messages, so I will end my time here for now. Uh, this is Rian really speaking to you. You already know who I am. Uh, I probably know who you are. And uh, yeah, take care. I'm gonna hang up before I get to an
1: action. Goodbye. What's really funny about that one is the transcription job that fucking Google did. It, like, makes it seem like like a crazy person is just fucking with us. We were terrified of it until we listened to it, and we were like,
2: <laughs> we we're like, oh, it's just a guy in his car.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's just, he's just, he's actually fucking doing the. He's, he's being he's being a good lad and calling our emergency St. Germain reporting hotline to tell us about the goddamn the purely mediocre buffet that Church Universal is
2: <laughs> triumphant Yes. <rides. laughs> and I'm, I'm sure it is just that purely mediocre. Oh, yeah. I would eat it, though.
1: I'd have to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, if you see something, you call us at 774-495-0491. That's 774-495-0491. All right. And that about does her. Leave rating review. Tell your friends. Tell your fake doctors. Tell your dog. Tell your dog. Hell Peace. yeah. Peace.